Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. We're back, Mark, we're back. It is the weekend in February the 8th, 2019 and hopefully... People can hear us. Can you hear me? I can, can you hear me, Mark? You. I can. Can you hear me? We had a bit of a glitch in the matrix, didn't we, last week? Um, we got a long story, isn't it, Mark? But we, our, our <laughs> recording, when it was put together by the software program, it was out of sync. And because I think you had a something going on at your place and a lightning strike or something, and um, it um, desynced us, Mark. We desynced. And then, we're, so, uh, we're so often well-coordinated that it was really... Yes, tough. we are. And we don't <laughs> talk over each other at all. Yes. So, and then I had to... I then spent a couple of hours and, and thank goodness one of our dear listeners um, who knows who he is, um, Doug, um, mentioned to us that um, we were talking over each other and we we're out of sync and I quickly... Well, as quick as I could, it took a couple of hours, Mark. Um, I found the original files, downloaded them and um, cut and paste and cut and paste and, and managed to sync them up again. But unfortunately, I didn't level our voices correctly. So the the episode that's out there, I think I'm very loud and you're reasonably soft. Um, as which is, which is sort so. of a bit of a reflection of the real world, Brendan. I don't think so. Um, I don't think so. Um, so apologies, dear listeners, um, if um, you were turned off from or you or you turned off from last week. But um, hopefully this week we're back to our uh, usual poor standard, and you'll be able to hear hear us um, um, very well. And we've got a, a really good announcement to make, haven't we, Mark? We have a new patron. We have a new patron, Emily. And Emily, thank you for becoming a kangaroo which is a $5 patron. She has given us $5 a month. Thank you very much. And we really appreciate people helping us out. It helps helps pay for the glitches in the system um, that we try and iron out. And um, yeah, patreon.com, Avet Gurus, if you want to help us out and give us a little bit of money to help pay for our production costs, even if you only do that once off, you can always cancel. Um, you don't have to do it every month. You can cancel it. But thank you, Emily. It is very, very much appreciated. And send us an email with a, a hello and, and tell us a little bit about yourself and we'll embarrass you on air. But thank you very much. And thanks to our sponsors, as usual, Chemical Essentials, Specialised Animal Nutritions and Microchips Australia. So that's enough of the plug, Mark. What have you been up to this week. I've had a celebratory week, Brendan. Um, uh, last, uh, um, this, well, um, January the 31st is my mother's 80th birthday. Um, and so we had a little bit of a get together. Um, we, uh, got, uh, um, it was a bit of a surprise, Brendan. Initially, Mum just thought it was, um, you know, my brother and I and, um, and, uh, Nikki and Sienna, but um, we ma- I managed to wrangle in a, a whole bunch of extra people that uh, Mum had known, and she didn't know they were going to be there. So I was a little bit worried about a um, 
a heart the attack. The fright factor. Yes. But she managed to survive the shock um, and it was an excellent afternoon on Saturday afternoon. And it just reminds me, Brendan, that, um, geez, you go through life and, um, and you meet new people, wonderful people that become friends, um, but isn't it always the, you know, family, the people that have been with you all your life that you fall back oh, on? Y- you are such a mummy's boy. <laughs> well done, Mark. Well done. And I, I, I have a confession to make, Mark. I, um, I phone up my mother every, every day, every day. Mum, um, Dad died a few years ago, as you know, and um, she still lives in our the house I grew up in. Um, so um, she does get a little bit lonely, although my sister is not that far away and she frequently drops in. Um, and mum's getting close to 90 now, Mark. And, um, yeah, she still lives alone in the house because she finds it convenient. And, yeah, she's in that little the little weatherboard house, Mark, surrounded by the mansions um, because the suburb that she bought into was certainly not um, very well off and now it is extremely well off and, and they're like the little, you know, um, the little man in um, Up, the... Um, the film, um, the little the little house surrounded by the by the big houses, yeah. But she'll probably be there till the day she is no longer with us. But um, yeah, I do phone her every every night to say hello. Are you alive still, <laughs> Mum? Are you still there? And um, yeah, um, so there you go. And she does appreciate it. She um, definitely would appreciate it. I think because after half an hour, I'm saying, "Mum, I've got to go." <laughs> no, no, it's it's um, yeah, it's. I think it's the right thing to do. So there you go. I'm probably a bit of a mummy's boy as well, Mark. There you Nothing go. wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. We all respect yes. our mums. Mark, do you have a review for us? We still haven't got a decent review um, going the last couple of episodes, have we? Um, what um, was I? We, we I did send you, you. What did I send you? A possibility. Was it a book oh, I or not? Remember? Well, we spoke about a, a, a book that we will review soon once we both had a flick through it. But um, yeah, I haven't really got much equipment. I've I've got a review of a, 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 a TV show if you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's do that. And I don't know whether you've been watching it. It's series two of The Orville. Um, which have you heard of that, Mark? I have indeed. It, um, it, it always it's, um, Seth Seth MacFarlane yeah. is the um, writer and producer and director and the captain on the ship. So it's a bit of a bit of a, a takeoff of um, Star Trek, um, and um, I'm very much enjoying it. Um, so even if you're not a sci-fi fan, it um, Talks a lot about each episode is a little bit political, a little bit about the human condition, um, and um, I'm finding it not only quite funny, but um, touching on some very interesting contemporary subjects, Mark. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying it, and you can watch it on free to air um, here um, in Australia, and I'm sure most of the world. Um, I don't think you need a Need a subscription service to watch it. So that's the Orville, um, Mark, series two. And I'll give it a very solid, um, and you know, I'm a bit of a sci fi nut, um, 8.7. There you go. Yes. That's almost as close. You always give an 8.8, I think. Um, so um, it's very good, but I'm sure it's not everybody's cup of tea. So um, perhaps I, I, if I am, a few I, of our I, listeners watch it, they may, may say that's a load of. 
cod swabble. Yeah. And it does. There's no doubt in the world that the show uh, has a very specific appeal. And um, and I was uh, switched on to it by um, by uh, one of our colleagues, uh, Dr. Deborah Monks, is uh, a mad keen Orville fan. And, um, and I think she particularly enjoys, as you pointed out, the... The uh, um, parallels, the the commentary on social justice issues that uh, that Seth takes advantage of the the parody situation, the Star Trek parody situation, to work to the max. And of course, um, uh, his style of humour, well, makes me laugh. So I suppose there is some people who won't uh, who won't enjoy it as much as you and I do. But I would give it an eight point seven two, Brendan. Good. Now you just have to watch it, Mark, um, to confirm that score. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. There's a review. Well, let's oh, – oh, and I just want to mention one other thing that is coming up. Well, two, two other things. We, we, we've we managed to score, haven't we, Mark, two – not one, but two interviews with authors, real authors, not just people who write technical um, bits and pieces like you and I, Mark, so actual published authors of – of things called books, Mark. Um, so, and we're planning to do the first interview next week. So it will hopefully go to air with next week's episode. It may be the week after by the time we put it together. But um, yeah, well, we um, that one's a, that one's going to be an interesting one, and that's um, about a sort of a veterinary-based theme, isn't it? That one. And the second author is a is an extremely well-published author, um, fiction author um, worldwide, and has had several hundreds of thousands of copies of their books um, published, especially in Europe, um, even though, um, well, it's been translated to one language in particular, but we'll go in detail with that, Mark, when we chat to this person. And, And I was lucky enough to go through university with this person um, who, who was a veterinarian and is now a full-time author, fiction author, Mark. So we're both very excited about those two interviews. So they'll be what our two main topics over the next few weeks, hopefully. And let us know what you think, vetgurus at gmail.com, um, whether you enjoy those sort of interview-type um, podcast episodes or whether you want us to go back to just sticking to our normal sort of rambling like we are right at this minute. I I hope people do like them, Brendan, because um I think that uh, one of the the things that excites me about those stories, the authors that we're going to interview, is that it sort of and it sort of feeds back into my interest about um you know the 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 shortage of veterinarians. What are what are graduates doing if they're not doing clinical work and the interesting answer to that question, at least in several instances, is that they're um they're writing books, and um, writing books is a uh, you know, um, I'm I, it's a very interesting thing, and it does feed back into understanding you know how different people in our profession um, might take their degree and use it in different ways. So I'm really looking forward to those interviews. I hope that other people are as well. Yes. They will be good interviews, I expect, because we'll just do nothing and they can chat <laughs> about their lives. And um, we like that, don't we? Because I find those the most fascinating, where people just chat about what they've been up to. And I'm going to chat about, Mark, the first news story, but otherwise we, we won't get on to our main topic, and that is the RHDV2 
So rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus, so Khaleesi virus, RHDV2, has been detected in the UK in hares, Mark. So I found this very interesting. As you know, we've, um, we, we, we're constantly chatting about this on our forums here in Australia because we have the RHDV2 in um, pet rabbits and it has been going through a lot of the pet rabbits and killing a lot of pet rabbits, although it's trickling off the um, the, the cases um, over the last few months, Mark. Um, but they have been finding RHDV2 in this article that was, I think I, I got from the Royal College, um, is one of several pathogens we are finding in dead hares. And it's too early to say which is currently the primary cause of the hair die-off, which they've been having. So they're continuing to investigate for other other cause, causes of death, deaths, and they're asking members of the public to take photos of sick and dying hairs and collect bodies for autopsy um, so they can try and work out what's happening there because brown hairs had suffered a national decline of more than 80% in the past century due to agricultural change, changes, but they've had a bit of a die-off um, lately um, where... The Wildlife Trusts, etc., have been reporting um, sudden deaths and they've detected the RHDV2 mark in, in the rabbits. That is, um, well, a little bit scary, isn't it? Do you have yeah. a theory about how, like, is, is, um, is that variant mutating there in situ or has it been introduced? Yeah, well, that's that was always a question with when we start when it was detected here in Australia, and then um, the Robin, um, the virologist veterinarian up in um, Australian Capital Territory, does a lot of the research and the testing for free for vets who send in samples. Um, um, you know, it's one of the sort of questions that herself and and all of us were were thinking. You know, how did it get here? Because the, the classic break breakouts were in Spain and France. Um, and Italy as well. Um, it's been detected in, I think. Um, and how did it get here to Australia? Um, and and how has it how has it um, got to um, the UK? Yeah. So um, my answer is I don't know, Mark. Um, I leave that up to the the boffins um, to to determine. Um, That's one of the differences between you and I. I'm completely happy to stick my. <laughs> Head out and yes. <laughs> above the parapet and make an abject fool of myself. You're so much more conservative and wait until the evidence comes in. As, well, you know me, especially on air I am, but off air I might be um, saying a few um, um, little bit uh, different commentary, Mark. Um, what's your first news story? My first news story, Brendan, is um, – uh, well, it's I, I'm fascinated by this, uh, particularly um, as I go skiing and um, when we are down in the winter um, on the snow fields, um, well, there's a number of, you know, obviously I do my bird watching thing and particularly the, the, um, the ravens uh, down in the Australian snow country country but uh, we also see um, uh, magpies and uh, and uh, gang gang cockatoos a number of birds get down there and seem to cope really really well with the cold and um, it is a, a um, mother nature network story about why don't birds feet freeze in the cold um, and I mean it's already amazing enough that uh, that the wonderful structure of feathers traps 
an, a, a suitable layer of air close to the bird's body that is such an excellent insulator that um, that the birds can maintain a, a core body temperature above 40 degrees despite sub-zero temperatures just outside. But But the amazing thing is those feet don't have any feathers. So what is going on there, Brendan? What is the uh, the actual mechanism that um, that prevents those feet from um, getting into all sorts of trouble? Um, and it is a worry because uh, many people, um, you know, call, uh, particularly from um, America and Europe, where um, those temperatures are, uh, occurring in close proximity to homes, people will call wildlife rescue services to come and save the birds because their you know, bare feet are exposed to very cold temperatures. Um, and those services are, are um, very happy to inform people that, uh, that the birds in question uh, are very likely to be coping very, very well because they're ingeniously designed to cope with that sort of thing. And the technique they use, the anatomic technique they use, um, is a network of arteries, the Riti Maribale, um, which uh, the arteries coming away from the body surround the um, blood vessels returning to the body and the heat from the core is transferred between those blood supplies and the blood entering the foot is cooler and the metabolism is the fo- of the foot is cooler than the core temperature, which means that the bird, first of all, doesn't lead, lose heat that way. And it also means that the foot can manage in those uh, very much colder temperatures. Um, so a unique structure, not unlike the sorts of blood vessel network of blood vessels that occur in kidneys, occur high in the leg of the, the bird and they ensure that the the uh, the feet don't actually get into trouble. Only in rare situations where there's, you know, um, temperatures uh, down around minus 30, 40 or something like that where um, the actual surfaces um, can cause frostbite, um, uh, that those sort of temperatures, even birds with their um, anatomic structures, they can't cope with. And I know you're tempted in those temperatures, Brendan, to go out and lick traffic signs and see how well that goes but um but outside of those extremes um they're they're wonderfully adapted birds to they are literally cold weather proofed um and uh and it never ceases to amaze me those pictures of birds who are standing on ice or um, swimming in uh near frozen water and coping admirably yes remarkable little system out there mark and um just flicking down the rest of that um, article that, that it's mentioned in even even in extreme cold they they're still coping really well with that and the adapt- adaptations there are that they could then um, basically sit down on the ground and have the feathers helping cover the the feet as well if it gets super super cold there but yeah the the um, the retail mirror mirror what did you call it Mirabile, Mirabile, Mirabile. Reti Mirabile. Wonderful net is the translation there. Wonderful net of um, of um, blood system. And I remember learning about all sorts of retes um, 
during my anatomy classes. Or oh, forgetting, I, may, I should probably say, not remembering, but um, sometimes these, the translation of some of these um, these um, these um, w- um, words, especially the ones that are that, those Latin ones I used to love, some of those translations. Oh, and, don't, uh, don't you wish you'd learned Latin? Yes, and because I... I I'm a bit sceptical skeptical about some of these um, translations that they have. They say, oh, that means X or Y in, in um, from the Latin translation, and I reckon half the time they're just having a <laughs> having a bit of a laugh. You're so and, cynical. And, and, and pulling your leg, Mark, with some of these. Um, so having said that, I'm going to look this up and see if it does mean wonderful net, um, <laughs> retame your ability, and, and um, get back to your mark and confirm whether or not that is the case when you're on to your next story. I might do a bit of a, a Google search, Mark. My last little story is only that, a little story. And the reason why I have it up there is because of my recent fond memories of my visit to India with the family and it is a mother nature network story meet india's beautiful technicolor squirrels mark and i don't know whether you've seen the the pictures of of these squirrels mark the indian giant squirrel uh ratufa indusa um it's amazingly colorful it almost looks like it's been spray painted mark um um and it's a big a big squirrel, this one. Um, they can get up to, read in the article, 2.2 kilograms. So they're a decent-sized animal, these. Um, and the thought is that they are such amazingly highly coloured or, or, or fancifully coloured that um, it has an advantage in the in the rainforest um, areas or, or the canopy areas. Um protection from predators with those colours um, when when potential predators are looking up. But they are pretty amazing-looking um, squirrels. And the bad news is, Mark, no, I didn't see any on my trip. I did take some pics of squirrels, and actually we were showing some of our India pictures to um, Annie, my wife's um, sister, yesterday um, at home here, and... Um, I had several squirrel pictures there, and and he chirped up. Oh, gee, he's got a bit of a he's got a bit of a squirrel fetish. He kept taking pictures of squirrels. <laughs> we're over in um, when we, because we don't have squirrels here, do we, Mark? Um, native squirrels here in Australia. Um, so yeah, I really enjoyed taking pictures of them, but I did not see any of these, so I was a bit disappointed that I didn't catch a glimpse of the Indian giant squirrel. So yeah, that's just a fun little story, and. I, some neat little pictures there of this particular animal. The good news, Mark, it's a good news story, this one, is they are abundant. They are not threatened. Thank them. goodness for and that. And they think, well, for the moment anyway, they think the Indian giant squirrels split from other squirrels about 30 million years ago, Mark. So there you go. That's my little factoid for the day. What's your last news story? Well, my news story Last one, the last one relates to another relatively unthreatened species, um, the galah, one of our favourite birds here in Australia. Um, And the story we have is from The Guardian, which talks about uh, a stowaway galah who managed to get on to a cruiser um, and ended up having a, um, uh, you know, a cruise around New Zealand. Um, So... What would appear to have happened is that uh, the bird was in fact microchipped, so it was someone's pet. It's gotten away and, and noticed that um, 
that, uh, well, there's a, a suitable landing point and there's quite a few people there. So it's landed on the um, boat in Brisbane. And then um, cruise ship staff uh, noticed the bird. They discovered the bird um, when they docked at Milford Sound in New Zealand on the South Island of New Zealand. And that's 23 hundred kilometers um and the bird had managed to skulk around the ship um probably i suspect with the uh um secret support of maybe some um uh yes. people on board but um eventually the staff identified it they alerted the new zealand ministry of primary industries as to the avian uh stowaway and um uh, Galaz, there are many Australian. When I was over there, Brendan, doing my little bit of uh, bird watching in New Zealand, um, I was shocked by the large number of uh, feral Australian birds that uh, really are making a bit of a dint in the curry country there, and the um, and they, amongst other environmental factors, um, predators and whatnot, the our, our nest competition with our feral birds in New Zealand is a major factor leading to um, nearly a third of the New Zealand species being critically endangered um, and some of them slipping towards extinction. So um, they were obviously the department was very, very concerned about another species arriving and uh, setting up in New Zealand, putting extra pressure on their birds. So um, they, they were insisted that the bird be uh, restrained to its own cabin, um, and uh, and it had to, um, you know, n- not have any chance of getting out. Um, and it was actually returned uh, to um, Brisbane, uh, underwent appropriate veterinary checks after its uh, wonderful journey, um, and um, was cleared to return um, back to its owners in Brisbane. So. Um, there wouldn't be many, too many more well-travelled pink and grey birds in the world, Brendan. And managing to have its own probably um, top-of-the-line little cabin there that it was locked in for the return journey. Um, gee, I wonder how much that was um, per night that it was <laughs> getting for free there. Yeah, the, the little galah there. Yes, good story. And that um, that was a story cur- courtesy of one of our... Um, one of our very prolific researchers, Mark, um, and we always encourage people to send in articles for us because we're always looking for some fun stories to share with all our all our listeners, all our subscribers. Um, yeah, great story, Mark, the stowaway parrot. And I think that one is a perfect segue to our main topic this week, which you suggested, Mark, and what is that Well, topic? it is a perfect segue because if if... The, uh, the people who own that beautiful pink and grey cockatoo um, had listened to our, uh, um, to our discussion now. They may well not have had a bird that could fly away. Um, so uh, I propose, Brendan, that we have a bit of an in-depth, in-depth discussion about uh, wing clipping. I know that we've touched on this um, in other contexts before, but I think it is uh, such an important topic and has um, surprising uh, ramifications and consequences that I think it's worth us just bouncing around in the topic and seeing if we can't cover off some of the important issues. Yes, most definitely. And it is such a 
common request, isn't it, Mark, from from owners of birds um, where they may not even want a consultation, that they phone up the local vet clinic and not an exotics specialist clinic or exotics interest clinic and say, I want my bird's wings clipped, Mark. And uh, I think it's still a very common request worldwide. So what do you say about that? Well, that's a very good question. And there's some pretty, we've trained our um, wonderful reception and telephone answering staff to have some prepared um, spiels, some uh, commentary, um, and to prepare the clients for maybe some events that um, might be much more involved than they originally thought. Um, So the first thing we usually say is that it's really important to understand that it's not a trivial thing to take away bird's flight. Um, There is a lot of um, health that is engendered by a bird that can fly normally. Um, They ventilate better. They have better cardiovascular fitness. um, They are um, more active. Their ability to be interested in things, they have a different perspective. Um, And so flight is not something to, to take away from them lightly. And the second thing is that wing clipping is unlikely to completely ablate flight. There are going to be um, circumstances with, depending on the type of clip and uh, and um, the nature of the bird, there are going to be circumstances where an excellently done wing clip is not going to render the bird absolutely unable to fly, that there will be some things that... Uh, that uh, some circumstances of wind and and uh, whatnot that um, that uh, could enable the birds to generate lift, and so just go you go. What's your question? So my question is, do you recommend wing clipping to that average client with the standard bird? If there's such a thing that can't that where you get that phone call out of the blue, I want my wings. Clipped of my bird. No, the short, there's, as usual, there's a short answer and a long answer. The short <laughs> answer is no, we don't recommend it. We actually strongly advocate um, for serious consideration. And if at all possible, um, let's not cut those wings. Um, but, uh, you know, real world practicalities mean that um, no matter how good um, my staff and myself are at, um, at advocating for the best outcomes for an animal. There are times when people's concern about escape um, and uh, the birds flying away overcomes um, our wonderful arguments and they still insist on having the wing clip done. So we do definitely do them, but we definitely are powerful advocates for not doing them. Yes. So if we do, and we'll get back to the not doing (laughs) it a bit, Mark, but if we do clip those wings from what you're saying there. So the aim is to make it difficult for that bird to to fly over the fence and and, and never be seen again, but not stop it being able to fly completely. So if it does jump from a perch, it can flutter those wings or what's left of, um, with what's left of whatever feathers are left there. And and you can walk us through the actual technique you'd recommend. Um, so it won't just whack and, and land on its sternum there, Mark, because what not that one of the most common 
conditions or issues that you can potentially get that can then be a real nightmare to deal with long term. You've once again cut to the chase, young Brendan. They definitely is a very, very common scenario for us with um, uh, a bird, um, a recently acquired bird, often a bird that um, is a heavy set bird, a galah or eclectus, but it definitely happens with um, lighter birds like cockatiels where um, they've had the wing, the, they've gone to the breeder, the breeder's uh, selected a bird for them, clipped the wings and the, they've taken the bird home and uh, and then about six or eight weeks later, the bird has a horrible sore on its chest. Um, and probably even more important than the sore, which is a serious enough problem on its own, um, the birds change personality. And the dynamic is that the bird crashes, as you said, and lands on its keel. And the keel is one of those unique anatomic locations where there is nothing between the keel and the concrete or tiles that it impacts on, uh, but skin. And so the keel acts like a little knife, crushing and splitting the overlying skin each time there's an impact. And eventually, once the skin's gone, it's the bone itself that belts into the the uh, concrete. And, um, and that process is hugely painful. Then the bird is trapped in this horrible cycle of, because birds... What they do is when they're afraid, um, they have a reflex takeoff. So even before they've thought, once they have a dangerous thing in their vicinity, they take off and probably take one or two wing beats before they uh, figure out, okay, now I'm in flight and I've got to go. So a very threatening thing, so maybe something like alarm calls from the minor birds outside, which suggests there's a goshawk about, a bird will take off even before it's thought um, because it knows if it sits on that perch too long in the wild, the goshawk's going to have a very nice breakfast. So they take off, um, but if they've got their wings clipped inappropriately, um, then they will tumble forward and hit that keel, and it hurts immensely. So they're trapped in this... um, horrible thing where each time they get frightened by something, they take off and it really hurts. And so because it really hurts, it means they get more frightened and they're more quickly taking off and they build up into this horrible psychological cycle of distress. Um, And it changes the bird's personality, Brendan. They become withdrawn. They don't want to respond to people because, geez, every time one of those people come near me, I I feel like I've got to fly. And if I'm going to fly, I'm going to hurt that keel. And I've got to fly because the kill's going to hurt anyway. And um, and it just means that the people don't have a pet anymore. They've just got a poor, painful captive in a cage. And ha- so how do you deal with those ones long-term, Mark? It's a bit of a it nightmare. It is a bit of a nightmare. And what about ones that then are becoming really self-destructive and really going at that spot and ripping into it? The good The one good thing about these injuries is that um, there are many types of feather damage or or wounds that uh, birds will then develop habits of uh, traumatizing the plumage in perpetuity. This doesn't seem to be one of them. The birds, if you can get um, the, the, the bone to heal and the skin to heal, um, then the birds are generally don't traumatize the area in an ongoing fashion. So that's great. They will traumatize it while the bone's open, though, because as you could imagine, if you had a little bit of your sternum sticking out of a wound on your chest, it would be painful and irritating. And if you don't have a hand to press against it, uh, then the next best thing is to just 
have a quick chew of it with your beak, um, and that just makes things worse. So um, these cases we treat aggressively to get the wound to um, resolve as quickly as possible. That sometimes means uh, surgical debridement and primary closure of the wound. Other times uh, it may just mean setting the bird up in um, in a soft cage, in a cage where it's, uh, it feels protected, it doesn't feel exposed, and if it does jump, there's a towel or um, cushioning on the bottom of the cage that it's not going to aggravate that wound too much and the perches don't need to be too high in in a cage like that so that they're the bird's able to get off the ground but not necessarily several feet off the ground and if it does fall um, it doesn't generate the forces that are going to make you know promote that wound in perpetuity so um pain relief antibiotics wound care um and um and uh uh, protect a, a, a supportive cage, a soft cage, if you like. There's some of these birds will imp. Brendan, do you know about imping? Tell me about you imping. Know all about yes. it, <laughs> um, imping is that process whereby we uh, transplant feathers. We use the the uh, remaining quill, the rachis, um, that's attached to the feather follicle. We trim it back and insert a bamboo quiver into the feather to provide a connection, a connecting bar. Um, and then over the bamboo quiver, we stick um, a new feather. We try and colour match them as much as possible. Um, but um, oftentimes these birds that have these chest injuries, if they can use their wings to maintain balance, um, it makes a big difference to their psychology. They feel much more confident and um, and they don't feel trapped in that horrible um, stress, pain, stress, pain cycle. So if we have that bird that you do for whatever reason decide we are going to clip that wing or wings... Briefly describe the process, Mark. How do, you, how do you do it? Well, before I tell you how I do it, I have got to do a little disclaimer because this is one of those things where even amongst avian veterinarians, there's some considerable controversy about uh, what is the ideal way to do it. And there's some argument about the forces involved and the role that different parts of the wing play in terms of takeoff and maintenance of flight and stress on the shoulder. So I do completely accept that there's a number of, well, a number of vets that I um, admire to a very, very high degree um, who would do things differently. But I will be more than happy to um, tell you how I do it and why I do it. Um, and then we can talk about the different ways to do it. The first thing to say is that I think it's just about universally accepted that you've got to do things to both sides. If you do things to one side, you will definitely make the bird unable to fly. It's probably, you know, one of the most effective ways of ablating flight, but it also just dramatically increases the chance of very, very serious, often life-threatening injury. So um, it would be very common for us to see birds that have one clipped wing end up with shoulder fractures or um, uh, those keel injuries or sometimes even as they twist and tumble and they're trying to right their head um, as they fall they can get neck injuries so um, these birds should not be 
made uneven. They will never adjust to uneven wings um, and they will get into trouble if they fall or try to fly. So symmetry. Yes. And, it went, and, it, and it was the, the recommendation um, many years ago, wasn't it, to just do one side? And I think that, um, you know, if you do do one side, you've just got to set the bird up in a place where it, um, you know, it can't sort of take off, um, that it feels very safe. And I think, you know, birds probably have um, uh, changed in that they, you know, might have been um, restricted more in the past. I don't know. But we definitely see those asymmetric wing clips cause a huge amount of, you know, the risks are just too great to leave them like that. So we're talking about bilateral symmetry. Um, and there's probably two broad camps, I reckon, amongst veterinarians who do this. The first one is that um, that you clip, you know, the, the wing is divided into the, the um, most lateral feathers, the primaries, the primary flight feathers. And there's 10 of those in our parrots, a varying number in other species. And then... Um, more medial to those, there's a dozen secondary flight feathers. So the tradition, the the clip that some people do is to lop off uh, the length of the wing to take uh, um, a diagonal cut, um, making sure that you only cut the um, uh, keratin of the feather that's not alive. So it's essentially um congruent equivalent to a haircut um, and you take um, a section off the end of the wing and that will definitely limit um, the chance that the bird can generate significant lift in my hands I've had a couple of cases where we've done exactly that um, and particularly with a couple of eclectus parrots which uh, as you well know Brendan are prone to um, uh, excessive attention to their plumage. Um, they're slightly uh, nervous, but very, very emotional birds. And uh, they live in the rainforest. And so perfect plumage is absolutely critical for them. And so they do naturally pay a lot of attention to their plumage. Um, but we had a couple of birds who definitely were set off by the the that sort of a clip at the end of their wing. And it is a much more it's not as aesthetically pleasing to my eye, um, but it, the main reason we don't do it is we've had those birds who've had problems. So yes. what we do is we uh, anaesthetise the bird. We identify the, uh, the final four, um, the most lateral four primary feathers. We leave those alone. Um, and then the remaining six primary feathers medial to those uh, lateral four on both sides. We lift so that we can see the quill between the coverts and we cut the each individual one of those feathers at that location. Um, and then we continue to cut um, the secondaries and of the dozen or so secondaries, we'll probably remove half. Um, and that leaves us with a panel um, of feathers that are absent um, that uh, runs from the, a little bit to the middle of the secondaries all the way out to those last three or four primaries. And what that means is that we have a, a wing of normal length, but um, there's uh, only about um, a quarter of the width. Um, and the birds are using those remaining um, 
secondaries close to the body are able to um, uh, balance and uh, do a little bit of gliding. And so if they are on a chair and they get a fright, um, they're unlikely to tumble down and hurt themselves. They can glide away, but they're going to struggle in most instances to generate significant lift. And once we've done it, go on. Okay. So, so a couple <laughs> of questions then following from that, Mark. One is, do you always anaesthetise these birds to do that wing clip? And by the sound of it, you strongly encourage that. And if you do, how do you go about the process of convincing that client who just wants their bird's wings clipped and no consult, um, you know, fee-wise, you know, what are you charging for that? And and do you get kickback from the client saying, look, I'm not going through the whole process of anaesthetising my bird, just clip its feathers a bit, please? I think, I think that we're particularly lucky because by the time people are calling and asking us to do this sort of work, they're... Um, I think that they are, by and large, open to the idea that this might not be um, the simple sort of thing that uh, that initially they thought it was. We don't. It's surprising how we definitely have clients that go, "Oh no, I'm not doing that," um, and we we won't do it. We can't. It's it's uh, to pull a conscious bird's wing out and hold it in an appropriate position to get a, a healthy wing clip that's not going to endanger the plumage, um, you, you, it's dangerous and you can't guarantee it. And we've definitely seen birds that have um, severe lacerations of the, the, uh, the, the, the you know, the the bones at the very end of the wing or the elbow um, because it is sometimes difficult to judge where those locations are anatomically. And if you're wrestling with a bird to hold its wing out, um, they find that a very dangerous and threatening position and they can tear ligaments or even develop fractures or luxations at the shoulder. So look, if we have clients who aren't prepared to do it properly, um, we stand our ground and we say we're not going to do it, Brendan. Yes. Yes, but I've got to say the good thing and, is that, um, and all kudos to our wonderful staff here. I think once explained, people realise um, the the very significant thing that we're doing and the very um, real reasons that we choose to do it the way that we do it. Yeah. So, well, that's <laughs> good. That's good if you've got those clients who do that. Um, do do, and you don't need to answer this question, but do you have? You mentioned that most of them um, go through that process with you, but um, do you have clients or potential clients that then turn around and just go to another clinic um, and have that ten dollar, twenty dollar, whatever? Sure we do. Um, clip, I've got no um, doubt that we would. And um, what happens then when that bird comes back in? Um, what are you are you then going through that whole process with them again, trying to convince them to perhaps? We shouldn't be doing it. Well, way. I've got um, a, oh, it's the it's the effort of trying to put the smarmy bastard back in the box. Like when they come back, and all the things that we've said are likely to happen happen, um, and they're now seeking our help. I've got a big, you know, part of me that wants to do the "I told you so"s, um, and and I've got to you know lift myself up. 
when they go low, go high, you know, the whole routine, Brendan. Um, and um, and yes. look, I'm, the other thing is while I'm uh, so, so proud of the way that we do communicate, I'm not so arrogant as to think that every time I run through my spiel um, that people absorb it all. Um, and so um, I don't see that there's any problem with um, re-emphasising different aspects of things as events uh, developed to show that uh, that those those things are real and genuine problems. Mm-hmm. Well, where do we go from here, Mark? Well, there's a couple of other quick things that I would um, I would say. The first one is that um, I we've gotten into the habit, Brendan. We have. Well, I think you and I know some people who uh, have worked in the Middle East and um, and there are sheikhs in the Middle East who have literally have uh, containers, container-sized um, uh, um, rooms, contain, well, physically, uh, um, you know, uh, containers, the sh- things, shipping containers full of um, feathers for imping. And what we've done at our hospital is start to collect those feathers, label them and keep them um, so that if we do have a bird that has a wing clip that develops a problem, a wound or um, behavioural problem or whatever, we're in the perfect position to put them back, Brendan. So hanging on to the feathers is uh, um, a, a probably a... An added extra thing to to uh, to do when you're taking wing you clips. Have a yeah, library exactly. Of um, so my only question regarding that is: Do you worry about infections? Oh yes, you know what a worry what I am, um, and and it genuinely is a, a particularly with the susceptible species um, uh, uh, cockatoos. There there is the danger, um, and it's one of the reasons I suppose we even argue more strongly that. Birds like um, red-tailed black cockatoos or whatever that they don't have wing clips. Um, that uh, we try not to uh, transfer feathers between individuals unless we absolutely have to. So that's a good reason for us to uh, whack those envelopes in a uh, whack those feathers in an envelope and seal them up. Um, make sure our library keeps the feathers separate, and uh, and if we need to imp a bird for whatever reason um, we can use their own feathers if we were um, if we were the ones to remove them in the first place and do you warn the client if you are using feathers from definitely and we take uh, you know we do have a couple of birds who we have uh, beak and feather disease tested and they're the the uh, that's the primary but not the only um, pathological uh, process we'd be worried about um, but we have a couple of those birds uh, that we have tested and but we do always warn the client if we're using feathers that are, are not from their own bird that there is always the chance of a problem and sometimes we decide not to imp as a consequence and manage whatever issue we're dealing with another way yes do you think the that's uh, probably an open-ended question isn't it do you think that the chances of pretty slim regarding any potential trends. I do think it's, it's you know, I think with uh, um, relatively modest... Um, you don't touch those feathers, as in you don't do any sort of, you know, 
no, this infection no, no. or F10 or anything, and you just leave them completely as they as exactly. they're collected. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, I think that there's a chance. Uh, I wouldn't uh, say. Uh, no chance at all, but I think um, that it's relatively low. And and I probably use the turn of phrase in situations where we have a bird that's painful and we feel that it's necessary to relieve that pain with imping that the risk of not imping um, in lots of those birds is vastly greater than the risk of imping um, and transmissible diseases. The other thing yes. that I was going to mention, Brendan, is reminders that um, most of our birds are going to, and it surprises me, never-endingly surprises me, that people who have gone to the trouble to um, welcome a beautiful feathered uh, uh, companion to their family um, don't know that um, those feathers will be um, malted and... Uh, and regrown, um, and that process, particularly with flight feathers, means that um, birds that have their wings trimmed or cut um, are going to be able to uh, regrow their feathers and uh, and be able to fly, um, you know, between six and twelve months down the track, depending on the bird and um, various other health factors. Um, and the important thing about that, first of all, is to send a reminder to. Uh, keep people aware that the bird might now be able to fly. But even more importantly, people uh, will be tempted, I suppose, for the exact reasons you discussed before, to give it a crack themselves, particularly if the bird comes back into, you know, a full feather um, three or four or five months after they've, you know, committed to a relatively expensive procedure. But obviously the blood quills are going to be... uh, um, amongst those feathers and more than once we've had to deal with a poor client who's snipped straight across one of those blood quills and has uh, something akin to a feathered version of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre going on. Well, you've answered that um, quite well yourself. Let's say, um, yeah, I was going to say a very, very stupid pun there, but I won't. No, no, let us have your pun, Brendan. We need it. No, no. Oh, come no, on. It's so poor. You can't um, drop. I was going to. No, <laughs> I think, no, no. I, th- I think I think we have a lot of other feather and skin conditions that we need to cover. So um, by the look of it, we'll have to put them in a future podcast, Mark, because um, as you know, before we um, – hit record, I did mention that, now, well, we need to talk about skin diseases and feather, other feather diseases and follicular cysts and tumours and other skin problems. And you said, well, let's just see how long it takes us to talk about <laughs> well, <laughs> about clipping w- wings of birds. And I think um, you were spot on, as usual, Mark, that we easily filled up almost an well, Just before we close, the you, you've drawn my attention to one of the important things that um, when we do have those other... Um, uh, feather issues elsewhere in the body. That it's not uncommon for poorly done wing clips to irritate the skin and uh, disrupt the plumage in parts of the body that lead to the bird having a pick. So anytime someone is talking about feather destructive behaviour as a presenting problem, um, I, I strongly recommend that um, a review of the wing clip um, and uh, 
and the way that's affecting the bird is part of our workup. So it does lead us into a nice segue that um, in one of our future uh, podcasts we'll go into some detail about uh, um, feather dis- diseases and feather destructive behaviour. I think it's an excellent topic, Brendan. Yes, and also um, you did mention about the cardiovascular um, effects of having wings that are working and not clipping them, and you briefly touched on the fact of birds do like to fly because that's what birds do, and the we need to chat about the environmental enrichment and how big should an aviary be, Mark? How big is a cage um, that works well for a bird? Um, and that's something I like to chat into detail a bit, and I'll tell you a little story off air about... Um, Somebody that we both know who's building a massive aviary um, for their for their birds at home, um, and I won't mention their name without their permission. And it is a massive aviary, and um, they are still querying whether or not it is big enough or the right thing to do. So, yeah, there's there's lots of things that can follow on with future podcasts for this um, topic, Mark. And I'm sure we'll be to- talking birds again and again and again so with that thought we will talk to you all next week thanks for listening thanks for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi Thanks again and see you next time.